0: Last week, Todd did a masterful job uh, giving us an overview of this book of the Bible that we're going to be looking at for the month of January, the book of Esther. And his theme was this is no fairy tale. This is real stuff. Uh, This is no story about a good fairy princess and her prince charming or anything of that nature. This is ancient, this is Eastern. This does not fit, fit our modern sensibilities, our modern Western sensibilities. Uh, Eastern kings like Ahasuerus, and let's just take some look at something about him, uh, pretty well identified. Ahasuerus is the, is the Hebrew name uh, that's in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. Probably, very probably, talking about a king by the name of Xerxes, who ruled the Persian Empire from 485 to 464 BC, 21 years. Now, you know, when we're in BC or before Christ, numbers go backwards, right? Now they didn't count backwards. That just that all started in the in the medieval period. But he started ruling in 485 B.C. and he finished his rule in 464 B.C. And just let me just give you another little, a little insight into that. And that is that, that Ancient dates are all up to some amount, some degree of discrepancy. Uh, I I have a degree, a a master's degree in medieval history, but I did some study in ancient history as well. And I can tell you from the inside, somebody disagrees with every date you want to throw up there. But this is a pretty well-established date uh, in the ancient world. Now, these eastern kings, like Ahasuerus or Xerxes, uh, they weren't like the medieval kings in, in Europe, you know, Western Europe. These guys lived in a palace by themselves. And then off in another place, they had a harem of concubines or semi-wives, and sometimes there would be another special house, and in that house would be the queen, uh, uh, that, the, the, the wife that was above all the other wives. And in fact, if you read about the Jewish kings that we're familiar with, King David, And his son, King Solomon, they lived a lot more like Eastern kings, they do like Western kings as well. They didn't share their their house, they didn't share their palace with the queen. The queen had her own house, and then there was a house of concubines for them uh, as well. And the dream of every woman in the harem of an Eastern king was that her son would become the next king or the next emperor. Even somebody as prominent in scripture as Bathsheba. You remember Bathsheba was one of David's wives and she had a son and his name was Solomon. And God said, Solomon is supposed to be the next king of Israel. And, and uh, e- even in that case, and David agreed to it, uh, uh, Bathsheba had to come to David when he was on his deathbed, and she said, "One of your other sons is trying to become king, and you promised me that Solomon would become king and, and that 's exactly what David did, and of course that was god 's will, and Solomon became king. But those, that's a situation that we're looking at and dealing with uh, in the book of Esther now we're calling this series the Esther Principle. Now, if you look up that, you could you know you can search the Esther principle, you might find something like Using your influence for good. That's the, in, uh, the Esther principle because Esther did that. Uh, she used her influence for good. But, but, you know, as Todd was mentioning last week, she also, in the process of standing up for her people, she participated in writing a law that caused the death of thousands and thousands of people throughout the, 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 the Persian Empire because they were anti Jewish or anti Semitic. In addition, uh, he's the, the, the king asked her, do you want anything else? And she said, yeah, those 10 sons of my nemesis Haman that are already killed, I want you to hang them up, stick them on that pole, and pale them on that big pole outside so that everybody will know you don't mess around with the Jews and I want you to give me two days of killing Jews or killing anti-Jewish people in the capital instead of just one day. This is no shrinking violet here. This is no Maid Marian. You, know, you ever watch the, the 1930s or 40s version of Robin Hood? Errol Flynn, the real Robin Hood. Uh, you know, and watch that version and then there's Maid Mary and she's sweet and she's loving and that's not, that, that's not Esther, okay? This is a tough, ancient woman. Now the principle, when we talk about the Esther principle, here's the principle that, that I want you to focus on that we will be focusing on for the month. That is this, even when God is silent, he is not absent. Uh, that, that's To me, that's one of the great things that we learn in the book of Esther. Even when God is silent, He is not absent, he is always there. And a subtitle under that would be this, though God may seem absent, his power comes through, even our sins, even in our failures, even in our imperfections, the power of God comes through because if it couldn't come through our our, our sins and our imperfections, we wouldn't have any power of God in our lives because we're all imperfect and we're all sinful and we're all a whole lot more Esther than we are like Daniel of the Old Testament. Now you may be in a time in your life, and, and if you're not in a time in your life right now like this, then you've been there or you will be in the future where you're saying, where is God? Okay, I agree, I, I like that part in the Bible where it says that God is you know, always there, but, but I'd like to feel his presence. You know, I, I like to feel that God is with me. I often pray that for people. When I'm standing in a hospital or something, I'll say, God, would you allow this person to feel your presence? and to know, be assured that you are with him or with her. Or we'll say, I can't see him working. If God's at work, why is everything so messed up? Why does everything seem to be crashing instead of getting better? Or we'll say, I don't know where God is. i just like God to tell me what to do. Ever think that? Or not? Because, you know, we don't like what God has to say a lot of times. We just want him to fix it. Without making us do anything very hard. And a lot of times, of course, God's already told us what to do. And we just do it. Uh, you know, just do it, even though we don't see Him and feel Him and that kind of thing. We just do it. But we're thinking, well, this is a ser- special circumstance, and surely that won't work, and God wants me to do something else. But keep this in mind God is always there, and God is always at work in our sins through our failures, through our imperfections, God is sovereign and God is working his will regardless of what the situation is. And he's always trying to draw us closer to him, draw us closer to him, make us more like him and to work out his master plan. Now, here's what we're gonna do this morning. Todd explained the whole story, I'm not going to do, do the whole story, but I'm going to read you a little bit of chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 2, a little bit of chapter 3, and then we're going to concentrate on chapter 4. And we're not going through the whole story, we're just coming up to that point in the story. We'll get the rest of the story as we get, go through the, uh, through the month. But in Exodus chapter 1, and I'm reading you from the New Living Translation today. Uh, and that's because, especially when reading a story, and especially from the Old Testament, it just flows and it's easier to understand. So that's we're, uh, everything I read today will be New Living Translation. Exodus chapter one, verse one says, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes. Now, the ancient Hebrew text says, Aha, says Ahasuerus. And, so, uh, and this says Xerxes because he's the accepted one. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. Verse 2, at that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. At that time, when these events took place, it was wintertime. King Xerxes had an elaborate palace in a city called Persepolis, and that was really the main main capital. But in the wintertime, he had a palace at Susa, and that's where he was at this time. Verse 3 says, in the third year of his reign. Remember he began reigning in 485 BC. So in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. Now last week, Todd showed us a great map. I'm gonna put that back up, about the, the expansiveness and talked about how the, that Xerxes had an advanced system of communication and administration. It, it was kind of based on fast horses. You know, he, he could get word all across his empire in a short period of time. These verses, again, I, Todd mentioned last week, these verses evidently describe this whole first chapter a planning party for all the leaders of the Greek kingdom, all the military leaders of the Medes and the Persians, and, and, and all the, the top guys from all the provinces uh, across the land came together as they prepared and planned to invade the country of Greece. The year would have been 482 B.C., the third year of his reign, and according to the Greek historian Herodotus, the guy that's known as the father uh, of history, according to Herodotus, it took uh, Xerxes four years to plan the invasion. This was 482 BC. The next year, 481 BC, uh, he invaded. But it was at this banquet that was going on where uh, uh, they all got drunk. All the men were partying together, and they had drunk, got drunk, and he called for the queen Vashti to come and show herself. There, but she wouldn't come. Now, we don't know why she wouldn't come. Uh, if, if it happened to be this queen, Amestris, then uh, she would have been either just getting ready to give birth or had shortly before this time given birth to the next guy who would become king or, or emperor. Uh, Artaxerxes was his name. That would explain it, but it didn't make any difference. King said, come. You're supposed to come regardless of what you thought. She didn't do it. It was a breach of etiquette. And uh, what happened is that she got fired from her job. He could have killed her could have executed her but he didn't and probably he didn't do it if she was the the mother of the next guy that was you know he needed her to take care uh of that little child but but anyway she lost her job uh and and she was condemned never to be in the presence of the king again for the rest of her life and that brings us to chapter two Exodus chapter 2 verse 1 says, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, Let's search the the empire and to find beautiful young virgins for the king. This probably happened after he had invaded Greece, You know, about three years afterwards, seven years uh, into his reign. Verse 5 in that chapter says, At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. It becomes evident, by the way, you read about Mordecai, he must have had a government job uh, because he was always at the gate leading into the palace, and he had an inroad. He had contacts, so he's probably worked for the government, which was common. Verse 6 says his family had been among those who, with King Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So back when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, uh, conquered Judah and the city of Jerusalem, they took all the best people uh, uh, back to Babylon. And they left the poor people and the less influential people to kind of keep things together uh, in the city. And among these influential people that were taken back were the family uh, of Mordecai. Verse 7 says, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin Hadassah, who, that's her Hebrew name, who was also called Esther, that's her Persian name. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And then after this point, if you read uh, in chapter two, this is where uh, Esther was taken as one of the candidates to become the next queen Uh, or if she didn't make it as queen, just to go into the the harem of concubines. It seems like Mordecai was all in favor of it. He seems to have been pushing it. Uh, and, and, And throughout the book, one thing we find is that Esther was always obedient to her adopted father, always doing the things that he suggested she should do. Now, Todd mentioned this last week, and I have to talk about it a little bit more, and that's the fact that Esther is a strange book to be included in the Bible. No mention of God No mention of prayer, although there's a bunch of times where you can just imagine the word prayer being thrown in. They fasted, and we want to say, and they prayed, because we know uh, from reading Daniel and other books that they were praying along with their fasting, but the book of Esther doesn't mention it. By the way, the first translation ever made uh, of the ancient Old Testament scripts was made into the Greek language. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint throws the name of God in one time. In, in the book of Esther because you want to it's so bad you want to put God's name in here somewhere. But there's no prophets proclaiming the word of God. There's no plagues from heaven enforcing uh, the will of God. There's no mention of divine intervention, although God is very evidently at work saving his covenant people, the Jews, and he's still at work, by the way. Uh, that's not necessarily a godly nation over there in Israel, although there are godly people, but he's still at work. Preserving those people over there for a time yet to come uh, in our future. By the way, Esther is the only book of the Old Testament that's not present in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know the Dead Sea Scrolls? There's a place in the Judean desert where there's caves called Qumran. And there's these, uh, 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 this group of Jews called the Essenes. They lived in the desert, you know, were very separated from everybody else. And they, kept, they had copies and pieces of copies of every ancient Hebrew text except the book of Esther, and it wasn't there. John Calvin, the great theologian, didn't include Esther in his biblical commentaries. The great reformer Martin Luther excluded, well, he included Esther in his translation of the scripture, but wrote this I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. The great Baptist preacher, former uh, late Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers from Memphis, preached only one sermon from the book of Esther in his entire life. And if that's not enough, the VeggieTales version of the story of Esther is the only VeggieTales Bible story that does not include Bob the Tomato. Now, I don't know what that means, but uh, I'll just throw that out to you, you know, as uh, one of the anomalies about the book of Esther. But, but here's what I know about Esther. It's in the Bible and it should be in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible and it should be in the Bible, we should look at it. We should read it and we should study it because when God puts things in the Bible, he doesn't, he doesn't keep any of the, the mistakes and the sins and the warts out of it. You know? He includes everything uh, in the Bible, and that's why I think Esther is there. And so Esther is, uh, goes as one of the candidates to be the new queen, and she gets her one year of beauty treatments. I don't know what all they did, but the best that was available in the ancient world, she's got her one year of beauty treatments. And Exodus chapter 2 verse 16 says this. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year of his reign. Seven years in, early winter. This would have been somewhere between December 479 B.C. and January 478 B.C. It was Esther's turn, her night with the king. Verse 17 says, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead Of Vashti and so uh, she's reached the peak I mean couldn't hardly get any higher as a woman in that society than the peak that she reached. Uh, By the way I was just thinking about this that there were other books in the Bible minor prophets you know that were written about the same time during the exile. The book of Daniel written a little bit earlier but written during the exile and and Daniel's a whole much a, a lot cleaner look at standing up for God in adverse circumstances. Remember Daniel refused to eat the king's food Esther said, bring it on, give me all the beauty treatments, Let me give me the good food. Uh, Daniel demanded concessions as a Jew. Esther didn't even tell anybody she was a Jew. Daniel refused to bow down to anyone except God. Daniel, when the law was passed, you, had, you can't pray to anybody uh, but the king. He went to his window, opened his window, faced toward the city of Jerusalem and prayed anyway. And because of that, he, was throw, he spent a night with the lions. And God shut the mouth of the lions and, and preserved him. And so, and so kids in Bible school, and they grow up singing, dare to be a Daniel, right? Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose for, for him. Dare to make it known. What could we sing about Esther? Dare to be an Esther? Dare to please the king? Wear cosmetics, watch your figure, and maybe you'll be the queen. That just doesn't seem like something we want to emulate, does it? Esther seems to be and she did something tremendous, something tremendous, but she seems to be a moral compromiser. She willingly went into the king's harem. She willingly spent her night seducing the king. She seems to be a moral compromiser, and yet God was still at work, still at work in her life. By the way, uh, we don't have time for it right now, but later in that same chapter, chapter two, this story of Mordecai. And He discovers a plot against the king's life, and and he exposes that. He should have been rewarded, and he wasn't, but that all works into God's plan. Chapter 3 begins like this. Sometime later, after crowning of Esther, after the discovery of the plot against his life and Mordecai uh, saving him, perhaps years, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted a guy by the name of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. Second only to the king, there was this guy by the name of Haman. Verse two says, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded, but not Mordecai. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. Doesn't, doesn't say why, uh, doesn't say that bowing down to him Uh, was worshiping a God other than the true God. It just says Mordecai wouldn't do it. I ain't bowing down to nobody. You you can just imagine him. And that fueled Haman's hatred. He found out that Mordecai was a Jew and and that fueled his hatred for Mordecai and for the Jews. And he decided this guy Haman, he was going to get rid of all the Jews along with Mordecai, not just him. And he went to the king and he said, King, uh, there's this group of people there in all your provinces. They're nothing but trouble. We need to get rid of them, and uh, it won't even cost you a penny. I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, donate ten thousand talents of silver to the treasury to put, to pay all administrative costs. Ten thousand talents of silver, by the way, would have been three hundred and seventy-five tons of silver. Now, Haman didn't need money. Obviously, he got money. He got all the money he needs. All the luxury he wanted. Power, and he wanted. He wanted fame. He wanted people to bow down to him. And it got his goat because, uh, because Mordecai wouldn't do that. And so an edict was put out. I, I thought you'd just look at this. The edict will allow that to allow everyone to kill Jews on a certain day, to kill Jews and to seize their property throughout all of the provinces, was issued in April, 478 BC, to be carried out almost a year later in March, 477 BC. The edict was shocking, even to this society that was used to death and, 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 and impaling people on poles and sticking them up where everybody could see. It evidently shocked them, maybe because there was a lot of Jews uh, in the city, maybe because there were other minorities who wondered, could it be us? Could we be the next uh, uh, group to be eliminated? Uh, maybe because of the king's seeming indifference. But here's what the last verse of Exodus 3.15 says, the uh, At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers on those fast horses, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. So so thousands of people are going to get killed. So a whole uh, ethnic group is going to get wiped out, so who cares? Have a drink. That shocked people evidently. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa, fell into confusion. And that brings us to chapter four. We're going to read, there's only 17 verses in chapter four. I'm going to read it and then we'll make our application. We get to the very end of reading the story. All right. Exodus, I mean, Esther four, verse one says this, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, you know, this, this edict that had been issued date was set, uh, all the Jews were going to get killed. He tore his clothes Put on burlap and ashes and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail you can just imagine it if you've ever been in that part of the world and seen any of this happen it's a very Eastern way to express grief verse 2 he went as far as the gate of the palace for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning verse 3 and as the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces there was great mourning among the Jews they were crying oh no eleven months from now we just have to stand here and let people kill us and take our property away. So Jews all over fasted, wept, and wailed, and we can imagine, and prayed. Uh, whatever reason <clears throat> Mordecai had for not buying down to Haman, here's what he realized. I'm in deep trouble here, and all of God's chosen people, all of God's covenant people are in great trouble. And, and he publicly identified with the Jews, and he showed his, his grief over what was predicted to happen. And we would have to think, and I believe it's absolutely true, that Jews all over the provinces, all over the Persian empire, were praying along with their crying. Uh, You read other books in the Bible, you find that that's what they they do. Meanwhile, God is still at work behind the scenes to deliver his people from this problem. Now, nothing, nothing up to this point would indicate that either Mordecai or Esther were great people of faith in God, great people of faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, This kind of shows us as we read through this chapter that they at least believed that God was protecting his covenant people. Verse four says, when Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. So what did she do? She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. You know, Esther, typical rich person, get some new clothes. You'll feel better about yourself. You know, just put on some new clothes. Well no. No clothes aren't going to handle anything here. Verse 5, then Esther sent for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So verse 6 says, Hatak went to Morde- out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Verse 7, Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money. Haman is 10,000 talents, you know, 350 tons or whatever, silver. He's willing to pay just to get rid of him. Uh, of all us. So he told the whole story including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And verse 8 says, Mordecai gave Hatak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. Not just some Jews, but the death of all Jews. He asked Hatak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. Second half of that verse says, he also asked Hatak to direct her Go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. These are your people. You haven't told anybody you're a Jewess uh, at this point in time. These are your people, and you're the one that needs to do that. Now, if, if people didn't know up to this time that she was Jewish, they certainly knew afterwards. Verse 9, so Hatak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hatak to go back and relay this message. She said, Here's what you, I want you to go back and tell, uh, tell my adopted father. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited, here's what's going to happen, second half of the verse, is doomed to die. You go over to the king without being invited, you're doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. She said, uh, what happens, uh, king doesn't feel like you being there. The king's got up on the wrong side of bed this morning. The king gets irritated about something else. He just lets you die. That's, that's what happens first. You die. And you're saved from dying if he extends the golden scepter uh, to you. And he hadn't, even, he hadn't even called for me. I'm the queen. I hadn't even seen him for 30 days. Esther was not interested in risking her comfortable life, the luxuries that she had, and she knew that if she did that, she'd have to put it all online. So verse 12 says, Hathah gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a minute. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when the other Jews are killed. Don't think for one second that you're going to get away with it. You're a Jew and you're going to die with all the rest of the Jews. Remember, uh, the king, the Babylonian king loved Daniel, but had to throw him in the lion's den because that was the law. Verse 14. This was kind of starts to show us, you know, they realize God's at work here. If you keep quiet at this time, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, God's going to see this taken care of. God's not going to let it, all of his people die just because you don't do what you're supposed to do. But here's the famous line, right? Famous line. You and your relatives will die, but who knows? Who knows if perhaps you are made queen for such a time as this? It's not about your comfort, Esther. It's not about your convenience, Esther. It's not all about you, Esther. Perhaps it isn't even all about your beauty—the fact that you're the most beautiful one. Maybe God simply allowed this to happen and is using your situation for His own purpose. For His own purpose, it appears that the situation changed for Esther because now she's got a, a choice between certain death, you're going to die. You don't do anything, you're going to die. So there's certain death here. And on the other side, there's probable death. You go before the king and plead for your people. Uh, you know it, it's, it's all in God's hands. It's all in the king's hands. So verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Verse 16, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. And we want to say and pray. pray, right? Do not eat or drink for three nights, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, second half of the verse, and then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. We all cheer, right? If I'm I'm, going to do it. I'm going to do it. I, I know now it's what I must do. And if I die, I die. So verse 17 says, so Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther did the right thing. And we're proud of her for doing the right thing. We say, yeah, go Esther. That's what you should have been doing all along, right? Esther did the right thing. Back to this statement. Let's, let's just read that statement again. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. That's a good thought for us to maintain as we just apply, take a few minutes and apply this story to our own lives. You meet a neighbor, you talk to him, you realize that this neighbor doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, perhaps, perhaps God put you in that position so that you could be a witness, so that you could cultivate a friendship with this guy. Perhaps you're the one that God intends to use to bring this person to Christ. Now, my garage door quit working this week, and and the company that, that always fixed my garage door was out of business, and there's a guy that lives down the street from me. And his, his truck is painted up Then he does garage doors. So I went down to his house, talked to his mother-in-law. And, and later he came down. He was such a nice guy, nice guy. I'll be happy to recommend him to you some other time. Fixed my garage door cheap, you know, cheap. Did a great job. I just had confidence in him. He'd, work, he'd learn how to fix garage doors working in high school, started his own business when he was 19. He was 29 years old and had been in business for 10 years. Successful business guy. And, and he's working. I'm so impressed with him. I, Ralph, my neighbor, come on over. Ralph, I want to introduce you to this guy. Man, if you need any garage door work, he can, he can help you. I saw Todd the next day. I said, Todd, man, if you need any garage door work, I got a guy. He can help you. Shouldn't I be that ex- at least that excited about Jesus? Shouldn't I? I mean, shouldn't I uh, at least say, hey, Ralph, man, and I've tried to do this, by the way. Ralph, man, I, Jesus is the one who can answer your problems. You know, Jesus is the one. Shouldn't I at least do that? You have a family member or a neighbor who's hurting. Instead of running the other way, so, oh, I don't like to be around that kind of stuff, perhaps God put me in a position where I can comfort this person as God has comforted me many times. You find yourself in a situation where everyone around you is doing the wrong thing. Everyone around you is making bad choices. Instead of going along with it in order to get along until you can get out of there, perhaps God put me here so that I can do the right thing and help these people. Now, I think one of the main things God wants us to learn from this chapter in Exodus, in, in, in Esther is this. God has a purpose for every life. God has a purpose for every minute of every life. But God has a purpose for every life. And here's something that's even more personal. God has a purpose for my life. That's what we need to say. God has a purpose for my life. Well, I know God has a purpose for your life. You know, you're the pastor. No, that, you can say that. You can say, God has a purpose for my life. God does have a purpose for your life. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David wrote this. He said, you saw me before I was ever born. A couple of verses before that, he said, you knit me together inside me, put me together inside of my mother. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. David said, you had a purpose for me. You knew me. God knew you before you were born. He had a purpose for your life before you were born. Now, we can kind of all relate to Esther's desire to maintain her comfortable lifestyle, can't can't we? Because I don't want to give up any of my stuff. I may not have as much stuff as you have, but I like my stuff. I, I I like the house I live in and my air conditioner and the truck I drive. And, and I like my stuff. We can all relate to Esther. This is really hard. Let somebody else do it. You know, I'm that's a little guy here. I'm just a, a minion. Let somebody else do that really hard stuff. We can all relate to her imperfections and her compromises because we've all been there in our lives. I want you to think about this. Sometimes we get to the place where we have to trust God that he's going to use us In spite of our broken past, you know, in spite of the fact that I have messed up, in spite of the fact that many times I've chosen not to do the right thing, God still wants to work through me. Esther had nothing to brag about. She was probably a very beautiful young lady without a doubt, probably a really nice person to be around, but she was a mess. She was not where she should have been. She shouldn't have been in, in the king's harem by her own choice. She was not doing what she should have been doing. She's not characterized as a woman of prayer or a woman of God's Word. She's just beautiful. That's the only thing we know about her. She's beautiful and she was chosen to be queen and her life was a mess. Now, I've learned from living a few years and from pastoring for a few years that everybody's life is a little mess, a little bit of a mess. Sometimes it's a mess we made ourselves. A lot of times it is. Sometimes we're living in a mess that we got drugged into because somebody we know or work with or love. Has a mess. And we get sucked into it. Sometimes we just—it's just living in this messy world uh, that that we live in. But we're all a mess in some way or another. And here's what I know. And I can't tell you exactly what God's individual purpose is for your life. But here's what I know about God's purpose for your life and for my life. It it it, it begins here. God's specific plan for your life will be in the context of His general will for all Christians. All Christians have certain things that, that, we can never, that we are supposed to be doing and his plan can never be outside of his will. Whatever he wants me to, to be doing, I have to be in his will, doing what he wants me to do before I can know the specific plan for his life. Now, uh, at the risk of um, making it seem too small, I want you to just think about this with me for a minute. Think about this, this platform as God's will for every person. And, and out there, outside of God's will for every person, not, not in comment on your life, okay? <laughs> just just, a, just an illustration. So on the platform, there'd be things like love your neighbor as yourself, honor your parents, put God first in everything, keep yourself morally clean uh, in this world. Tell other people about Jesus and your experience with him. Be as excited about Jesus, at least as you are this repair guy, you know, that did something good for you. Always be a good example. Be faithful uh, to, your, to your church. Give back to God through his church, acknowledging that everything comes from you. The summary uh, of uh, being generally in God's will, I think, would be Matthew 6:33, where scripture says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. That pretty well sums it up. Put God first. Put God first in, in, in everything. Always do the right thing. And let God take care of all that stuff. You worry yourself to death. All that stuff you don't want to lose, all that stuff you want to gain, let God worry about that stuff. But now let me uh, expand on There's other stuff up here on, on the platform of God's will. Riding your motorcycle can be in God's will, absolutely. Now, it could be out of his will too, but can be. Playing golf or tennis can be in the will of God. Hunting and fishing and outdoor activities can be in the will of God. Working on your house, taking a vacation, having fun in general and relaxing Right up here on the platform. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, teach those who are rich in the world. That's you and me. We're rich in the world. Teach those who are rich in the world not to be proud nor to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Jesus took some time off. He didn't have a very long ministry, but he took some time off. It's okay to have fun. God wants you to have fun. Christians ought to have fun. Now, some of your fun might not be up here. It might be out there, way out there uh, somewhere. So everything on the platform represents being in the will of God, and everything off the platform represents being outside of the general will of God. That would be things like live for yourself. You know, put God and church and others below your own convenience and your own comfort. Make everything all about you. All sex outside of the marriage of one man and one woman is out there. Only one way. For sexual expression that's accepted in scripture. Waste your money and go deeply in debt. That's out there, but not up here on the platform. Put everything ahead of your relationship with God. That's out there, not up here. We don't have to keep going down the list, but, but you see that in order to be, to, to be uh, uh, ready for whatever God has in mind for you, and he's got something in mind for you, something unique to you, you have to be up here. You have to be up here in God's will. Now, in order to get in on God's will and God's plan for your life, there's only one way in. We call that salvation. I think of it these these steps, you know, stepping up to God. Uh, salvation is God's will for everyone. That you trust Jesus as your Savior. You go to Him and you repent of your sin and you admit to God that, that, that you can't make it on your own. You faked it and faked it and faked it all your life, but you know there's something missing. And you repent of your sin, and you turn your life 100% over by placing your faith and trust. I belong to you, God. Whatever you want of me, that's what I'm going uh, to do. That's God's will for everyone. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some men think. That is, his promise to come back. Jesus is coming back one day. And all this stuff's going away. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some men think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anybody to be destroyed, but wants everybody to repent. That's what God's will is for everybody. He wants you to step into his will by trusting Jesus as your Savior. And beyond that, he has some specific plans for you. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Now, if you haven't believed, place your faith and trust in him. That's not, yeah, I believe that there's a God. The devils, the demons believe that. See, I believe that Jesus died for everybody's sins. The demons believe that. Placing your trust in Christ is more than that. It's repentance and faith placing your life in his hands. God saved you by his grace when you believe. And you can't take credit. It's the gift of God. And by the way, and you walk up the steps, you may go in and off the platform, but you, never, you don't go in and out of the family of God because once he saves you by his grace, you are saved forever and a member of his family. And you will... Uh, vary in your life. Verse nine says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it, not by works of righteousness, not the good things that we do. You don't go to heaven because of all the good things you do. You go to hell for trying to do only good works. You do to go to heaven. It's because you trust in Jesus. Now here's verse 10 for we are God's masterpiece. Wow. God, couldn't you do any better than this? We are God's the high point of God's creation. If you looked around at God's creation, pretty beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it great? Uh, you look at animals and this nature. It's just, it's just amazing. And yet scripture says, you are the masterpiece of God's creation. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why'd you do that? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Long before you were born, he had a plan for your life. Now, I don't know exactly what those plans are. I didn't even tell my sons when they were growing up exactly what God's plans were for their life. I told them what God wanted them to do today and tomorrow. I told them about being saved and baptized and faithful to their church and giving and all those things that all Christians ought to do. But God had to deal with them on an individual basis of how he expressly wanted them to live their lives. All I know is that whatever special thing God has for you, you got got to be up here serving him before you find out what it is. Now, there is an area. It's all about serving others, by the way. There is an area. Each of us can serve God by serving others. And we use the, the, the passions, the skills, the special abilities that God gives every one of us. I, I can remember my mother, as I was growing up, she always said, I don't have anything. I don't have any skills. I don't have, there's nothing special about me. She's one of the most special people I ever knew in my life. Did, did so much good for so many people. I know something about my area for, for God's life on, you know, on the platform as well. I'm, I'm doing it, part of it this morning, but there's a whole lot more to it uh, than this. And, and the other people that shared the platform with me this morning, uh, they too know part of what God wants them to do, but it's, an, it's not just a Sunday thing, it's an everyday thing. Your place of service to God is likely not on this literal platform. I don't want that to be confusing, but it's just as important as being up here on the platform. God has a purpose for your life. It starts by you trusting Christ as your Savior. Without that, you you can't do anything that pleases God. And it continues by you doing what you know he wants you to do every day. And then all of a sudden, you need to ask yourself, maybe God put me here for a situation just like this, and I need to step up. Do the right thing. Now, let me give you five things real quickly here. How can I know God's specific plan for my life? Number one is trust Christ to save you. That's it. That's the beginning. You've got to get saved. You've got to trust Jesus as your Savior. Number two, always do the right thing. It's always the right thing to do the right thing, even if it's hard, no matter how hard it is. A lot of, these, a lot of times it's just easier to go along in order to get along with everybody and kind of slide through. But always do the right thing. Number three, look at your shape. Now, we've done this before. Shape S is for spiritual gifts. H is for your heart or your passions. N is natural abilities. P is personality. E is experiences. Those five things go together to make you a unique individual, as, as unique as your fingerprint or your eye print or anything else about you. You are unique. Number four, ask yourself these questions. What do I love to do? What am I good at? And God's probably not going to have you doing something that makes you miserable. He designed you with a purpose in mind. And if you just look at people, I mean, everybody is so special, you know? It is so great if you have a friend, so great if you have a relative, if you have a baby born, so great, I mean, so unique. Ask, God designed me, so what, do I, what did he design me to have passion for, and what am I good at? And then, instead of just thinking about it and taking tests and so forth, number five, try different ways of serving him. Then say, well, maybe it's that. Try it. I'm going to be looking for people soon who will be willing to do some follow-up visits, church visits with me uh, and for me and visit sick people and, and visit shut-ins and, and do some of those kinds of things. There's a lot of things to be done. Uh, and, and some of you have found that. You just kind of get in and go to work and, and you're good at it, better than, than other people that are around. We, you know We don't know what happened to Esther after she saved her people. Did she continue to stand up for God? Do the right thing, or did she slide back into her life of convenience for convenience sake? I'm beautiful, so, you know, I can have whatever I want. Well, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what we need to ask ourselves. What am I going to do about where God put me right now? It's no accident that you're here in this room. No accident at all today. Part of God's plan for your life. Will you today... Will you enter the will of God, enter the family of God, be eternally saved from the consequences of your sins by trusting Jesus as your Savior today? Will you repent? Are you at the point where you just would turn it all over to God? If you've never done that, you know it's not accidental that you're that you become a member of God's family. It's not kind of drifting in. There's a choice that you make in your life, and that's very clear in scripture. Have you made that choice between you and God? You can pray where you are. I'm going to stand down here in a minute for just just a short time. I can pray with you. Uh, But God, to meet with you during the week or go talk to somebody you, you have confidence in that you know is going to heaven when they die. And then will you commit yourself to do whatever God has for you to do? Will you enter God's will by trusting Jesus as your savior to start with? And whether it's right after you do that or you've already done that, will you commit to God? I will be whatever you want me to be. I will do whatever you want me to do. Not all about being a full-time pastor, you know? A lot of it, most of it is about doing the job that that you're good at and serving God and standing up for God wherever you happen to be, whatever that is. Are you willing to say to God, It's a little scary, And I don't know if I can do this or not, but by your grace, Father in heaven, by your grace, I'm gonna do the right thing all the time. Let's pray. Father, I know you're here with us and I thank you for that. And uh, I know I've talked for a while today, but I do ask you to help us to remember Esther. With all her imperfections, her physical beauty and all of her imperfection, you loved her anyway. And even though she didn't always do the right thing, you used her, and, and, and we're all the same way. We're all a little bit of a mess, but, but you can use us. Please use us in spite of ourselves. Draw us closer to you. Give us the grace to be in your general will so that we can know the specific plan you have for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sit, please?